Hello and welcome to the Yoga Syndicate. In this episode, we'll be talking about bhakti, love and compassion. Ellen, what is bhakti yoga? Bhakti yoga. What is bhakti? What is love? What is compassion? Help me out here. <laughs> well, Alice, these are some big questions. We could uh, uh, say that bhakti is devotion. And devotion is love towards something or someone, we could say that. Uh, <clears throat> in the yogic sense, we could say that uh, bhakti is a, is a movement um, that... Uh, is perhaps the most inclusive uh, movement in in religious life because anyone can uh, participate in the in the bhakti movement to have devotion towards uh, a deity. Uh, it doesn't require that you have a specific um, education or learning or belong to a specific caste. So bhakti, this kind of devotional religion, became very very important in uh, in India. Wow. Sounds like a movement, like it was like temporary. It's like it isn't love everlasting. I did isn't isn't it an eternal thing or or uh, how, I mean I don't look at anything traditional as being really focused around love and compassion. Um, or am I am I completely wrong on that? That's exactly the opposite. Well, perhaps love is uh, is eternal, but it's certainly something we all have in us. It's a potential. It's part of our deepest human nature. Uh, and uh, when uh, and that's probably why it became so popular that everyone could relate to it. It's still very very popular. Uh, you have your personal deity, your Ishta Devata, and uh, you um, you uh, devote all your actions to your uh, to your deity. So I think um, if we look at it a little bit more deeply, we can say that. Uh, the act of uh, devotion is a way of bypassing your own limited sense of self because it means basically that you dedicate all your actions of your body, speech and mind to something that is greater than yourself. And um, the ideal bhakti, in the ideal act of, uh, of bhakti, you, you are, have no concern for the results of what you're doing. So any result that you want to achieve is a kind of uh, egoistic aim. So you just act um, uh, through love and uh, devotion. And whatever the outcome is, it's okay. It's like Ishvara, isn't it? It's kind of like this sacrificing yourself for, for something that is uh, definitely greater and bigger and separate from self Exactly, because uh, according to uh, the the yoga philosophy, both the the Brahmanic and the uh, Buddhist, uh, our uh, our main problem in this uh, life or in this world in uh, samsara is that we have this limited idea of uh, who we are. We attach so much meaning to our thoughts, our concepts, our idea of a self. And this is always a very limited idea of self. I'm this, I'm that, I'm my thoughts, I'm my emotions, I'm my feelings. Uh, whereas uh, devotion, you, um, you, kind of, um, you kind of supersede all that. So you, uh, you don't act for your, out of concern for yourself, but you act for the, for the greater... Um, for the greater good 
and part of it in the in the Advaita Vedanta philosophy, everything is Ishvara. So uh, so whoever you uh, who, uh, whoever you act for, whatever you whoever you serve, is the is the deity because the deity transcends everything. Hmm. Okay. Now, bringing this into modern day terms, you know, and you know, when we were confronted with such a, you know, uh, bhakti and you know words like shanti and peace and you know, the ananda, the blissful joy, and so on, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about balance, you know, in the gunas with the sattva versus the rajas disk and the tam tamas disk and you know gunas and so on. I mean, can letting yourself and separating yourself from self in order to truly live and love and have compassion in a divine, legitimate, natural, organic way, can it also be a, a roadblock to other realizations in terms of keeping your antennas up? Should there not be too much bliss and joy in bhakti? Or is, is the whole point that you don't even regard nor judge nor think or determine how much or how little you have you just are peaceful loving and compassion compassionate i think there's no contradiction re contradiction really i don't think you need to be a, a, a stupid uh, bhakti or or uh, abandon all kind of uh, common sense it's just the value you attach to it you know common sense is is always there the world is always there you have to go about your life and be realistic about things it's just i think it's just this attachment to the result of our actions that we want to ourselves determine what the outcome should be and we have an idea of how uh, things ideally should be mm. so i think bhakti to so to act with devotion is a way of of uh, um forsaking this to uh, to rid ourselves of of this uh, attachment to uh, a specific result because hey we are not in charge of the world anyway there are so many causes and conditions happening all the time that we are not in charge of so it's a kind of narcissistic view to think that we are governing the world and we can determine the outcome of our actions so i think it's it's kind of healthy to give uh, to give that up I I agree. It just seems that modern day life seems to be governing a constant in that any action shall yield a result. And there will, in fact, don't tell me there's not gold at the end of the rainbow, because in modern day terms, there at least in digital form will be gold at the end of that rainbow. Um, my point being is just you know, back in the day when bhakti was really, you know, initiated as a type of yoga, it is a type of yoga, it isn't it? It is a it? type of yoga. Yeah. And, you know, if if a whole branch of yoga and uh, was sort of revolutionized in one beautiful, you know, sacrificed way or another back in the day, it would seem very difficult nowadays in a landscape of... of I would almost call it a mindscape, uh, uh, like like a field full of minds, and the minds is me, myself, and mine, and and me. Uh, so that in all of the the, the 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 scenarios that play out in the course of you know one day, one week, one year, one lifetime, 
you know, uh, once again, in using this phrase, the, in the West, um, it seems very difficult to really let go uh, long enough to, you know, without doing a kumbaya, drinking a, you know, a bottle of wine and having a lovely, lovely evening with some friends and they sleeping over and having a, almost a slumber party in your old age thinking, you know, okay, then Monday comes and you're back at work and you're like, wow, this was one of those weekends I'll never forget. But I, I think with bhakti, don't we want to, uh, you know, attribute and connect our lives into a way where you're, you're living a life that you don't want to forget? Not just now and then diving into the bhakti and letting go and feeling the fruit of not being attached or... Are, are we even capable in modern day times to respect and practice bhakti in its full form? Well, I think in the, our modern day society, and as you use the phrase, in the West, mm. we are an extremely uh, individualistic uh, orientated society. It's all about the individual and we almost perceive it as is it, if the individual is in charge of his or her own destiny, as if we can ourselves determine the outcome of our actions. We can't. Come on, that's uh, that's something we we can't do. Uh, of course, any action will yield the result, and we can never stop acting for that reason. But uh, what that result will be is is something that we are not in charge of. Mm. So when it comes to devotion, we we think we tend to think like in the West that. Uh, or maybe it's not just in the West, but we tend to think that, oh, things should be so natural. What will come will just come. And uh, I'm like this or I'm like that. I'm naturally devote, devoted to something or I'm not inclined to be uh, devoted. But this is actually some techniques that you have to practice. It's not that these things come by themselves. We have to remind ourselves that uh, when we act we do it for the for the greater good, and it's not just paying lip service to to uh, to that to say, oh, I'm an altruistic person. I do this for the greater, for the for the greater good, for the good of mankind. You actually have to feel it deep down inside, and for and for that, you need to develop some uh, some techniques. Mm, I, I mean, we have the potential. We just have to develop it. I hear what you're saying, uh, and I like that you use uh, the the phrase lip service um, seems to be a lot of lip service. Um, and I think people aren't necessarily to blame for their own delivery of lip service uh, when it comes to sort of either practicing what you preach or, you know, um, uh, you know, seeking that which you seek. You just are, you just are a, um, you, you, you are a product of the times, aren't you? So, I mean, but I, Nowadays, you know, I think people are veering away and getting a little bit. I, I, I have to give the yoga world a little more credit, at least in in such times, you know, uh, during and, and at the edge of a, a, a pandemic worldwide situation. You feel like people actually are practicing yoga more because they they sort of mean it. They're they're reaching down deep into the pocket, maybe now and discovering that when they pull their hand up again. Uh, it's not just full of loose change, uh, but there's there's a little bhakti coming up out of the 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 inner lining of their pocket that they're 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 seeking and finding out that okay, there's a part of me here that I want my yoga practice to be about. But would would it be false of me to portray or to say that yoga yogis 
have a lot to learn when it comes to the actual implementation of bhakti uh, in everyday life. If you were to generalize Ellen Johannesson, uh, it's impossible to do because everyone is, of course, interdependent of what I'm trying to claim. But in general, I, it's rare that I see, you know, a yoga initiative, you know, in some big city that we're going to save the wells or or or, or anything of that uh, that that nature. I, I see a lot of you know lots of pats on people's own shoulders and hugs in the entryway and lots of you know oh really oh that's fantastic i re i saw you finally manage that pose it was beautiful mm -hmm. i mean are, are we uh, are we losing sight of um of uh, of of letting go and 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 dwelling a bit too much on uh on on the surface uh, isn't bhakti a little more deeper than we're we're allowing ourselves to go I think bhakti is uh, definitely a little bit uh, deeper, and if we're talking about lip service again of acting for the for mm -hmm. the common good, and uh, I think in in the, to a certain extent this situation has made us aware of that because this is definitely a situation that we're in together, and we can only get out of it uh, together. But uh, ultimately, bhakti, if you devote yourself to like the the common good. Has to be a reason for that. That you don't see your neighbor as an asshole or the uh, the obstacle maker that you uh, that you usually perceive. But you really have to learn to see the 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 full um, divinity of every living being. To see them in their full dignity and respect that. And for that reason, uh, you uh, you want to act on behalf of uh, of everyone because everyone is worthy of that. And and you are here by the grace of uh, of uh, other people as well. So none of us, uh, we, none of us are an island by ourselves. No, but now I'm Grandpa Bhakti. Sorry. Call me Grandpa Bhakti. Okay, Grandpa Bhakti. Thank you. Um, I want to shed some light on you, my grandchild. Uh, and the light is, uh, or the question is to you. Uh, divine and ever so wonderful, enlightening Ellen Johannesson, is bhakti then dependent on, is it kind of back to the, the concept as the, the grandparents always tell us, first you must start with yourself and then you can go beyond the blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, just like your parents always reminding you that the problem lays within you and so does the answer. Um... I'm asking you, is, you know, s compassion is always a very sort of me versus you and me in my act of goodness and my, my release and good intentions uh, in, in, in accordance to others, um, kind of a, a concept of compassion and love. But does, does this, you know, does this core, does this self, does this individual need to start uh, in order to be compassionate towards others do you have to really practice and feel the compassion for oneself well uh, first of all my parents never told me that you should start with yourself <laughs> maybe yours did mm. uh, uh, talking about compassion and self-compassion this is always a, a big issue about self-love and love i think as i think about it these days is to recognize the the 
um, compassion as an innate capacity in all beings. And we have certainly received compassion from, from other beings. Sometimes we think we are so miserable. Oh, my mother didn't love me and this my partner left me and I've had no, no real love. It was all a lie. But that's bullshit. I mean, we would never be here if it wasn't for, for other people. Someone has taken care of us or we wouldn't be alive. So it's as simple as that. Mm. And it's a matter of recognizing that recognizing that compassion is happening all the time, mm. all around you. But we haven't opened the eyes to see that. So if we can realize that we are in fact receiving compassion, we are receiving the grace of other people, then we can place ourselves in that network and we can pay it forward. Uh I mean, I'm definitely grateful and really thankful uh, in that my parents, although they split up after uh, me being just two, um, that they had an accord enough to have, you know, converged and ultimately um, equals that I was born. Um, and... You know, I know there are so many one-night stand results of human beings being born into this world that also have their uh, justification as to, well, fate had it, uh, you know, in the cards that I was meant to to be here. Um, and like you said, that you know, in the in the land of of of, of suffering and that which is unsatisfactory. Um, Maybe some people find it also very unsatisfactory to consider bhakti uh, as an option because they, the one-night stander, um, has been fed with this idea like, well, you know, you were an accident. Or, you know, like you say, there's a lot of people out there that are taking things way too personally, way too sensitively, that they can't get around their own perception. So what would be the clue for this person? Would you say practice, practice, practice? Don't go with your emotions. Do you have any like uh, one-hit wonder tips for us to to initiate more compassion in understanding? How do you tell someone to just, hey, one-night stander, um, you were at least put into this world. You can see, you can hear, you can taste, you can sleep, you can wake, you can love, you can hate. Um, what do you tell the one-night stander that just can't get out of his mind that he's been served a bad card in this world and how he should initiate a little bhakti in his life. Well, it doesn't matter if you're a one-night stander or whatever you are. The fact of the matter is that you wouldn't be alive if your parents hadn't taken care of you. And they do that with the, with the greatest love and care for how many years does it take until you can manage by yourself? They have to teach you everything. They have to change your nappies. They have to put you to sleep. They have to dress you. They have to feed you. If there wasn't for love and compassion, the children die. Good if they're point. not held, if they're not touched, if they're not loved. It's as simple as that. Well, but there you go. You one-night standers out there listening to this, just keep in mind that uh, there were obviously a whole you know, army out there that was changing those diapers of yours, keeping you in accord to your every single breath that you take even to this day, because you took a lot of them along the way. So if you ever get into the, you know, the relics or the, you know, the, the thought of embellishing thoughts that, oh, 
poor me. Uh, remember, it took quite a lot to get you to where you are now. So um, equate that into love and compassion. So maybe maybe we just need to understand. Go ahead. Yeah, and secondly, you can remember, where are we today, Alice? We're sitting here in wonderful Norway. We're enjoying so many uh, uh, advantages and privileges here. And you don't have to go back in history very far to see, uh, to come to a, a time when we didn't enjoy these privileges. I can remember when it uh, when it was uh, 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 when they changed the law. You were not no longer uh, allowed to beat your children. You're no longer allowed to beat your wife. Uh, this history of, of equal right between the, the gender or the gender equality, it's not very old. And it's not like there is a, something in human evolution that, uh, that makes us become more just or more, more equal. There are actually people and activists who stand up and fight for this. And they don't fight for this because there is some goal for them personally at the end of the road. They fight for this because, quite often because they have a great bhakti, they have a great love for humanity and they want the dignity for every living being. So we can't separate that. Activism and love quite often goes together and we don't think about it. But we could remember that that is not just by accident that we are enjoying the privileges that we have today. Mm. Um, well said and I appreciate that. I am... Um I sometimes feel a bit, you know, because this is a land of absolute privilege, um, at least at this juncture in time, there's there's just no doubt about it. I don't know of perhaps if, if I literally had to, you know, look into it and study it, you know, intensively, um, I don't know how more privilege you can possibly get than living in Norway in uh, in in at least in 2019, <laughs> I don't know about 2021 as the whole world is affected. Uh, but even as the whole world is affected, this little corner of Norway seems to be doing uh, uh, quite all right. So uh, how do, when you ex experience these creature comforts uh, and these privileges, as you say, how do you, um, you know, not just being a one-night stander, but a, a also a legitimate privileged human being, Again, let's just go to any human being. Uh, how do you, Ellen, um, you seem to be very grateful, very graceful, and have a very keen eye for uh, the love in everything and, and in all sentient human beings in life. I, just being with you is, is, is quite exhilarating because you really look at life in my eyes as it should be looked at. So I'm thinking, how, how do you, or along the way, how have you, uh, practice uh, practice this this bhakti in in small you know steps. If we were going to this krama uh, uh, step by step discussion of how to reach your bhakti goal. Well, I think I like everyone else. I I started out like an ungrateful teenager, and uh, <laughs> slowly, slowly, I perhaps. Or hopefully, I got a little bit wiser. But it was a conscious training, you know. I'm trained within the the Buddhist uh, tradition, and you can say that, well, in the Buddhist tradition, we also have this um, uh, 
there are different parts of it. Some are like pure philosophic, some are like uh, humane, and you have some are metaphysical. But just the more practical sides of, of Buddhism are, are very healthy and very, like, uh, I would say, applicable to, to everyone. But the thing with us human beings is that we adapt so quickly to a new situation, so we tend to forget how we got there and we forget to be grateful that is just human nature we're wired towards uh, never being satisfied because we have to well evolution evolutionary wise we have to proceed forward if we just sat down and we were very happy with what we had we would not provide for the future so that's one disadvantage we have in our psyche so therefore you know like in buddhism you have very many practical methods to remember and to go through a train of thought and train your mind to remember to be grateful to remind yourself of uh, what you have and also that you have to pass the uh, to pass the the good things um on to the next generation i i i really like that if there is a, an actual you know practice of having to uh, key in on on what it takes to 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 remember and to continue um, you know walking that path that you've set out upon I I can appreciate that uh, that train of thought uh, in obviously in Buddhism looking and avoiding that which is unsatisfactory by filling it in with that which is and what could be uh, more satisfactory than than actually seeing the 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 uh, the results of you know uh, of giving yourself completely and wholeheartedly to a greater cause and reaping the benefit of seeing someone smile or writing a thank you back to you for for your your, your graciousness. So I mean, it uh, it seems to be that you know. Um, now in, in, in such times that people, like you say in the very beginning, and just like any child that's born and brought into this world, we need to be touched, we need to be held. Um, bhakti isn't just a revolution. It's, 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 a, it's an evolutionary need to... We, we wouldn't be here, would we, if uh, we at an early age weren't being, number one, taken care of and... Number two, nurtured in one way, shape, form, or another. It's in our nature to, to have bhakti in us. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, and that's a big question when you look at uh, at mankind. You know, I think you and me were probably brought up with this idea of our survival of the fittest and uh, the world, or, or uh, um, our life is a is a struggle one against the other. But actually, there are other movements within psychology and evolutionary psychology that said that we are pr primarily wired towards cooperation. Mm. That's our deepest reality. That's the way that our bodies economizes energy, is to put yourself in the proximity of other beings. And then you economize. You don't spend so much energy being in the fight and flight modes and being aggravated and, and frightened all the time you're comforted by other people you're in rest and digest yeah mm. well rest and digest in the drive mood you get to do what you have to do mm. uh, a key question to you that's been living in nepal for many years i was just thinking that 
You know, you've made mention, uh, and mind you, it's seldom that I've been to a place like, you know, walking outskirts and in the fields of different villages outside of Kathmandu, where I've, you know, in the company of you, have been so, once again, privileged or grateful to experience the downright, you know, kindness in the look, in the movement, in the reaction, in the sort of, it's, it's not like a, hey, you know, uh, welcome, everybody come here, but you see a certain quiet, it's not like an Italian thing, it's a very sort of Nepal thing to look at you in a very, and you know, in a very special spiritual way. But you've made mention that when it comes to the verbalizing of love in Nepal and the whole concept of loving uh, in what we, you know, in from the Marilyn Monroe uh, and uh, Greta Garble and all of the beautiful, you know, romanticism we have in the West uh, in terms of what is love, at least on the silver lining. I'm just thinking, on the silver screen, I'm just thinking, is it... Um, how how with bhakti, um, you know, how do, how do you compare this concept of love in terms of love and relationships uh, to to bhakti in your mind? Because living in Nepal, you said has been a very tough cookie. You know, you've almost you know you you had a uh, a partner there, and you you said that they were they took some time to train up, and um, that you almost felt like you had to. You know, although this was the most beautiful person in the planet, you still had to bring him up to speed with, 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 with what you felt that was potential there in terms of this love and compassion from him. Although he had it all to begin with, do they express is love is is this compassion thing just like languages? Does it just take a different form in different places dependent upon where you go? I just think it takes a, a different form. So, so my experience with uh, um, with the Himalayan people is that they have this like absolute acceptance of you. They accept who you are, but they're maybe not so great on this uh, expressing uh, affection, and especially in romantic relationships. You know, it's just not the culture to uh, hug and kiss and touch each other a lot. That's kind of the maybe the the private, very belonging to the private sphere. Maybe not even there. So let me cut you off because this mm -hmm. is so cool right now, and it's often something that you. You, you find in, in some deep-rooted psychology when people are giving you, you know, either suggestions in some sort of session of some sort or another where someone says that acceptance is key and this, everything else will either come or it may not, but just first you need to be, you just like an alcoholic, you need to accept that you are an alcoholic and you need to call it out. Hi, my name is Ellis, I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to AA meeting number one. Um... You know, like you say in the Himalayas, you just find that everyone has a certain innate, you know, bhakti feature of just, I accept. Look at you. I see you. Namaste. The light in me sees the light in you. Um, do, we, do we have, um, in general, is this a tip that you're giving us now when I asked you the question, do you have any little baby steps? Is acceptance of the neighbor that you used to be a little bit ornery with before Corona times, and and now is you find that that neighbor's home, working from home, and you look out, and you're like, hey, that that person's actually outside, 
in a bed of flowers. Um, I would have never expected that guy who I thought was like this to do such a thing. He must actually, after all, be a wonderful person. Do we need to learn to accept that everyone is potentially kind and wonderful in their own right mm. in order to find this divine inner nature in ourselves? I think we're so busy all the time and, and we're also so wired to compartmentalize everything that we see. True. So we tend to see people like that. We see a fraction of the being. We see the angry neighbor or the, the boring person or the sad person or the agitated person. We always see that fraction and we also see... We quite often see according to what our habit, habit is, you know, and we see according to what do I need to see at that moment. So you see people as kind of uh, obstacles or, or to what you want to do, to or to what you want to achieve. Oh, this annoying person, the, and you dehumanize the person. If you're in the, uh, if if you're in your car and someone is in front of you, they're driving very slowly. They're not a person anymore. They're just the asshole who is not up to speed. So right. we compartmentalize in in that way. So uh, one good way of uh, of uh, overcoming that is just to see, you know, just remember that there is more to every person than than what you see. What you might what you see might just be your own projection, or it might be it might also be. Uh, uh, what the other person projects that is their little fraction of themselves so so one good exercise that you can do is just to ask yourself the question well what more is there mm. what more what is there more is there to this mm. person than i perceive in this moment does it help to look away like in this vidya yeah this concept of self-study that how do others perceive me uh, like, for example, when you gave the example about traffic, you know, when you're looking upon the car in front of you, um, you forget there's a car behind you mm -hmm. looking at you like if you're the traffic. Uh, but all you can think of is, you know, oh, traffic, this guy in front of me. But you're also the guy in front of someone else. Um, how do you put yourself into the equation uh, more readily? Um, is, is it... Is it looking in to, to let go of these devices or is it looking out trying to let go of these devices and by saying, you know, practicing just like any good, you know, repetitive mantra, hey, my neighbor is good, one more time, hey, my neighbor is good, and one more time, hey, my neighbor is good. Um, do we need, do we need, do we need repetition in order to, to, to jump over this, this, uh, the so-called mountain that is just a little molehill in our minds but is creating so much havoc and getting around the way we think? Well, we need training and we also need to learn to see, you know, what is it we see? Our seeing is also very selective. We see that fraction of, uh, of our neighbor and there's a lot of things that we don't perceive. We maybe don't perceive that, uh, or perhaps that neighbor is very loving toward his kid or his dog or um, what not, I don't know. But maybe we don't see all these uh, moments or we see them and we, but we don't, uh, we don't perceive them or we don't pay any attention to it. So mm. that's another way to, when, when do we ever perceive the greatness of people? Now you're in the small drips, you know. Exactly the small drips. You know, you just you just brought up an accord that really uh, I hadn't planned on bringing this up, but now uh, it just hit hit like a lightning bolt inside of me. How can we, in a land of texting and messaging, 
ever get our point across if we don't have the small drip of the scent of someone's voice and the temperament and the small, delicate break in what one says, even on the phone, that would bring us into a level of, ah, it's not what you're saying, but it's how you are saying it that is telling me what I needed to to feel thank you I, I you know what I understand I know you you didn't say that in the right kind of way but I feel it now thank you for saying it just like that but people they'd rather spend 10 minutes writing back and forth something that could be conveyed beautifully and so legitimately in a matter of seconds is technology getting in the way of a real wholehearted bhakti Ellen Technology getting in the way? Uh, it's a very interesting question, actually, which is, is to say that I don't know. Uh, but this situation that we're in now has certainly brought out a lot of questions like that. You know, in what way can technology really bring us together? Mm. And in what way does it keep us apart? I think in some way it seems that it brings us together just because we're so damn happy to just be with people in any virtual way that is possible, because now we're all sitting in our houses and we're not allowed to go and, and physically meet. Um, and then we have these like minimal decontextualized uh, conversations that we have, you know, when we're texting each other, yeah. <laughs> which are like fractions of, uh, of sentences. And... Uh, at best, I think it's a kind of like uh, poetry. It impinges <laughs> on some inner landscape you have. And of course, you fill in the gaps. And, okay. um, so, and so, you so. might fill in the gaps. You know, it might be right, it might be wrong. You, and you make up this whole fantasy about uh, a person that has written you three sentences. You already get a sense of who this person is, how wonderful it would be to be with them, and what you could do together. Fill in the gaps is the whole, yeah. I see. So messaging could be very practical when it comes to certain episodes of filling in the gaps because we all, like you say, when you're spending so much time alone in such times and not out and about, that um, we also need devices to fill in the gaps. Um, mm. I'm, just, I'm, just, uh, I'm just a bit concerned. Um, things go very quickly with, for example, the news, with information, with requirements, with, you know, certain bills. You, you, you can't possibly pay a bill one second late because you, you won't be fined by some human being, but a computer will say, I'm, I'm sorry, but you, in fact, didn't pay that. And you, you could automate the whole thing, but, you know, no one is teaching us how to do that because they want you to be late in paying your bill. Um, so there, for me, that's what I mean. It's not only text, texting and you know technology as such in communication, but technology in general in terms of you know the pressure of things, of having to to conform to that that norm of being a part of technology as such. And if you're not, then you won't have a common playground to to express yourself and be heard. Um, you know, so I'm. I'm wondering if compassion and you know love in its original bhakti form back in the day, because we're talking about uh, 300 BC, aren't we? Uh, I think a little later. A little later, yeah. yeah well, probably more like the fifth, sixth century common era. Okay. Um, 
Either way, it was a damn long time ago that they they put forth this concept of, of love and compassion. But back then, there wasn't there wasn't even a, a telephone or a Benjamin Franklin electricity or anything of the sort. So I'm just wondering, in a you know, in not just sharpening the tools that you had uh, of the day, but sharpening your love tool or letting the the candle the candles burn, um, because I I I always look at love and compassion also as something you know. Also romantic, not just in something as as a selfish act of of, of kindness. Um, you know, I I just envision that things were probably also back then quite challenging, but there seemed to probably been more stillness, less clutter, um, and in this case, less technology getting in the way of what you were potentially capable of. Is that a question? I don't know, is it? I think we can agree there were less uh, technology and uh, people's lives <laughs> might have been... <laughs> I think we can agree there was less technology. <laughs> Simpler in, in some way. I, just, I was just thinking about uh, how, how do we have this, uh, um, these ideas of, uh, of, uh, of bhakti. Yeah, of course you have, like within Buddhism, it's, it changes. You, you have the, the movement towards the Mahayana, which is really the compassion for all and the liberation is uh, inseparable from uh, compassion wisdom and compassion is like inseparable unit and then you have the it it really takes on in the in the indian society with this like um plethora of uh, of deities that you um that you uh, um that you devote yourself to and uh, you certainly have um, the the bhakti in the in the bhagavad gita is like the big um famous and very popular ethos of um, of India uh, which is um, which is to a great extent about uh, a bhakti um, what was I saying it, um, you were being just you were just become you were being compassionate and loving and, okay. and looking looking back uh, and and putting a coral coral mm -hmm. <laughs> putting a lovely narrative to us wrapping this beautiful thing up I was just uh, in closing I'd just like to know um, do you do you consider do you, do you go into a mindset ever when you're alone and think uh, how can I sharpen this bhakti tool of mine or is it not something that you literally consider because you've sort of graduated uh, Y school you're 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 in the bhakti of everyday life no I I do it uh, as a practice and uh, I'm. Uh, I'm kind of making an effort now to uh, to doing this practice by also sharing it with other people because I think it's so important right now when we're in this uh, situation to realize that we are part of a of a network that we are inter that we are relational beings so that we don't sit isolated in our house and think that we have to face this situation uh, alone because we're not so it's really important that we find these human connections. And uh, when it comes to technology, in one way, like you say, it is dehumanizing. For instance, for my parents who are in, the, in their 80s and 90s, they can't cope with this. It's a kind of structural, structural violence, I would say, that they can no longer 
um, they can no longer buy their train tickets or uh, mm. or figure things out because they're not online or even pay their bills. It's getting increasingly difficult for them. So in that way, it's a structural violence uh, with this uh, with all this technology. On the other hand, for for people who are a little bit uh, we are old but <laughs> we're up to date to a certain extent it's an opportunity huh? it's an opportunity yeah mm. because uh, in this situation you know we can actually communicate we can see each other other's faces thanks to technology whereas you know 10 years ago we could only talk now we can see each other facial expressions and we can communicate and I think that also shows the the strength of of humankind that you know humanity always finds a way. And there we go, humanity always finds a way as we prevail and find our way in concluding this wonderful episode about bhakti. This is the Yoga Syndicate.